Well, good morning, Christ Community. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Reed Kappel. I'm one of the pastors at Christ Community, uh, and I served here for a number of years, and I'm now the campus pastor at Olathe Campus. And so this is, it's been a year since I've been back here, and it is really, really good uh, to be here. I'm just, I've been eager to, to come and to be with you, to open God's Word, and I just wanted to say just thank you for those of you who have been a part of my life and my family's life. Uh, for these last almost nine years of being a part of Christ community, I'm just thankful. And so it's just a joy to be back. Um, whoo, I was getting emotional there. That's, that's just embarrassing. But it's just, it is, it's really good to be here. A lot has, has changed our life in this last year. And I, I bring you greetings from the, the land of Olathe. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot going on. If you're unaware, we are uh, building and expanding out there. We ha I have an updated this is our backyard right now, so it's kind of crazy. Uh, so all of our, our lawn and landscape is gone, and so it's really fun seeing this take place each and every day out there. So if you haven't been out to see the construction site, it's really fun, so come check it out. Uh, so yeah, we're just really excited to see the, the work that God is doing uh, in our part of the city, and we're thankful for the way in which our whole congregations across the city have been serving in this way. And so uh, another really exciting thing that's kind of taken place in our life is that since uh, we moved to Olathe, we had a baby boy. I know. It's a miracle. We did it. We have three girls, and now we have a boy. This is Edmund Reed, and that's a life-size picture, actually. That is how big he is. The kid is massive. It's like a medicine ball we carry around. It's just crazy. But we love having a boy in our life. It's just, it's unreal, but we love it. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're just so excited to, to be back here. And uh, yeah, just wanted to give a little update. And I'm really glad someone got my email that I, I wanted a new stage before I came and preached. So thank you for making that happen. Uh, Andrew, appreciate that. No, just kidding. This is kind of interesting. So uh, we're in a construction site in Olathe and construction here. So I'm used to it. But, but uh, really, um, I, what I wanted to do is if you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, we've been going through this series on, on vices and virtues. And, and what we mean by vices, it's not so much the, the worst things that we do, but rather these deeply seated habits that form and shape us to be the people that we may not fully realize we're becoming. And, and so I thought it would be a great transition after talking about having young children to talk about the vice of anger. Uh, and it's really appropriate because this vice of all the vices, I think, is one that we tend to project on other people. We think that it's a problem in other people's lives and not our own. Because if I were to ask for a show of hands, like, who here has an anger problem? My guess is I wouldn't see very many armpits. You know, it's just like, no, anger problems are what other people have. But we all know that we tend to get angry in certain settings. We wouldn't necessarily say that we have an anger problem. We just tend to get angry in certain moments. But I think that's because, especially in our context of, of living in kind of a, a comfortable Midwestern suburbanite culture, the reason we think we don't have an anger problem is because we are layered and layered with comforts. And so we, we think that we don't have an anger problem, but it's really because we have so many comfortable things in our life that prevent us from actually being angry. Which is why C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Oxford-trained atheist-turned-Christian, uh, has this great line when he says, everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. And, and it, this is true. Like we, we all think, oh, I love being kind and gracious, but when we take away our comforts, we will see actually how angry we get. Let me just think about it. If you take away, if you take away Wi-Fi from me for a month, if you force me to drive five miles under the speed limit for a week, if you take away air conditioning for a day or hide my phone for eight minutes, just see how patient and loving I am. We all have anger issues that are masked 
and guarded by all the comforts in our lives. And what I want us to see and understand, and I realize this is a hard pill to swallow, is that each and every one of us is far angrier than we realize. Each and every one of us is far angrier than we realize. And I, and I, and I realize in saying that, I've made some of you very angry in saying that. And you're even angrier because you know I'm right. And so I want us to see that we all do have seriously, deeply seated anger issues of vice that forms and shapes us in ways that we are unaware of. And I believe the first thing that we have to see to get to the point of realizing we have an anger issue, that our anger is greater than we realize, is that we have to own up to our anger. We have to realize that the only person who is responsible for our anger is ourselves. Others may evoke it, others may do things that kind of uh, provoke us to anger, but we are the only ones responsible for our anger. And so, which is why I think it's appropriate to look at the teaching of James uh, in his first chapter. He gives this very beautiful command of being slow to anger, slow to speak. And James often has been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. He provides all this great practical wisdom of how to live life, how life is lived best. And James himself, being a Jewish man, was very familiar with the Old Testament literature, uh, of the wisdom literature, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, as well as in the book of Ecclesiastes. And James's words are actually an echo of something we see in Ecclesiastes 7.9 that says, Be not quick in your spirit, to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And that word lodges, it, what, what it means is to take root, to establish, to, to make one's home in something. James is fully aware the reason why he's saying, let every person be slow to anger. The reason he's giving this command is because he knows what anger does to our hearts. It takes root, it lodges itself, it makes a home within our hearts and forms us in ways that we are unaware of. But we tend to think that anger is just an emotion that comes upon us in the heat of a moment. But re the reality is, is that anger is something deep within us. Which is why we tend to justify our anger. In my opinion, and I know this is true in my life, is that the vice of anger, I think, is the easiest vice to justify, to explain away. You know, say, no, I, I, I don't have an anger issue. Like, that, that's, something, that's something that was brought upon me. You know, that wasn't me. Uh, when, when I reacted in that way, I don't know what came over me. Uh, she made me do it, or he said something that caused me to act in that way. We tend to justify and explain away our anger. When, in, when we all know that deep down, we are the only ones responsible for why we get angry. So as we consider this reality that we are all angrier than we realize, uh, and as we come to this point of owning up to our anger, I want to offer just a couple questions for us to consider this reality that you and I are angrier than we realize. And the first question is this, are you angered too easily? Do you find that, that your anger comes up so easily, so readily, so naturally in situations where things don't go your way? Do you find that anger is your primary emotion? It's your knee-jerk reaction when someone doesn't treat you the way you expected, when a coworker or a classmate or, or a, a sibling is not doing their chore or task and it kind of creates an inconvenience for you? What is your primary posture? What is your main reaction in those moments? Do you find anger welling up too easily inside of you in those moments? A couple years ago, I remember I was reading a Bible story to my oldest daughter, Lula. She was about five or six at the time, and we were talking about heaven. And I asked Lula, like, well, you know, what will be in heaven? And we talked about all these beautiful things. And then I asked her, just kind of in a creative way, what won't be in heaven? 
What are things that we will not see in heaven? We talked about pain and evil and things like that. But one of the first things that Lula said was, yeah, there won't be mean dads. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder what dad she's talking about. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but in this moment, I mean, it's, we laugh, but in that moment, I was hit like a ton of bricks as I heard her words. Because Lula, I mean, she, she, she has this category of me as a mean dad. And my reaction was to get angry in that moment. Like, what are you talking about? What have I done? And, and, but, but I had to pause and sit and listen. Like, why does this sweet child think that I get angry? And so I asked her, I said, sweetie, why did you say that? And, and she was a little bit bashful. And she said, well, you just, you tend to get angry. You tend to get mad really often or really easily. And, and it just hit me. Uh, it took a five-year-old to help me see that anger is not just something that comes upon me. It's something deeply seated within me. So for some of us, anger comes up way too easily. And so is that you? Consider if anger comes up too easily. But, but for some of us, maybe the question we need to ask is, are we angered too excessively? Are we angered too excessively? Maybe you don't get angry so easily, but when it happens, you just go off the handle. You overreact. Do you find that when you get angry, you kind of have to crank it up to 11 to make your point come across, which is so strange. Like, why do we think that yelling is a way to kind of get our point across? You know, like, and I realize the irony that I'm yelling right now, actually, in saying that. Uh, it's Sunday. I'm a preacher. But, but it's, in all seriousness, why do we think that exaggerating our emotions is something that can get people to, to feel what we're feeling? My wife and I, we just recently read a book by Paul Tripp called Parenting. Phenomenal book. I'd recommend it to all parents. But in it, uh, Paul Tripp talks about this, how we do exaggerate our emotions. And he says this in these moments with our children. He says, no child hears this kind of talk and says to himself, what a wise and loving parent. I know I can share my heart with this person. I just wish he would say more of these things to me. I'm so thankful this person is my parents. I think I'm beginning to see my heart. You know, like, no, no child is thinking, they're thinking like, who has put me in this room with this person? Like, there's a fear. Why do we exaggerate our emotions? I think sometimes we do it, I know I do, to make myself more of the victim and more the other person, more of a perpetrator. When I can make the, my emotions and the situation far intense than what it actually is, it makes you look far worse and makes me look like the victim. Do you find in your anger that you are angered too excessively? Do you find yourself angered too easily? And, and be honest with yourself. Ask yourself the question, like, where do you see anger welling up? What form and shape does it take in your life? Do you see it manifesting in, in things like cursing, of using just inappropriate language that, that's just destructive and toxic? Do you see it manifesting in just increased volume? Do you see it in slanderous words that just destroy others? Do you even see it in, in, in something as dangerous and as pernicious as abuse, as physical abuse? And, and hear me say, I'm not naive. I, I realize, I mean, in, in a church like this, we tend to think something like domestic abuse that happens outside of this place. And I'm not naive to, to understand that this is probably a reality for some of us in this room. And the reason I bring this up, I mean, anger is not just an emotional issue. It is a deeply seated vice that destroys relationships. And so let me just say to the, if, if that identify, if you identify with, with a domestic abuse relationship, would you please invite someone into that conversation? Would you let us know? Would you entrust that information with a pastor, with someone you know, so that we can journey with you, so we can help you and love you? And let me say, if you are the abuser, hear me say very clearly that the most loving thing we can do for you is to call you to repentance, to turn from that. We want to love both well, so please, we just, I invite you to, to speak to someone you know, to, who you trust, 
so that this is not a secret that continues on. I say this because this vice is not just about emotion. It's something that destroys us. And we have to own up to our anger if we're going to get to the point that we realize that we are angrier than we realize. Now, some of us, some of us, the anger issue is very much like that, that classical issue of getting angry too easily or too excessively. But I, I, I believe that there's also a sense in which the reason we have an anger problem as a people, as a culture, is because we don't get angry at the right things. There's a sense in which our anger problem is rooted in the fact that we don't know how to be angry correctly. And it's not just about our emotion, but it's about the target of our anger. And we tend to think that the things we get angry about are noble and righteous and just, but at the end of the day, if we're honest, we know that our anger is really rooted in a self-entitlement or, or some self-interest that we didn't get. And oftentimes in this case, this is where the vices play very well together. Envy is usually a great catalyst and jump starter for anger. We start to see life is great, but then all of a sudden my neighbor pulls in with his nice car. I start to now get envious, but then I start to get angry at him in some ways. And in this case, we may not be all that dissimilar from a monkey in a test that as he was rewarded a cucumber for a simple action, he reacted as he saw his partner receive something better. Take a look. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task, and we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us, and that's what she does, and she gets a grape, and she eats it. The other one sees that, so he gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. <laughs> Stupid monkeys. No, I mean, seriously, like, like we laugh at this, but we know there's a sense in which we identify with that, that our anger is really not rooted in this, this just cause, but we have been slighted. Something has happened to us and we feel inconvenienced, therefore our anger is justified. But my guess is that our anger issue stems from something more than just emotion. It stems from our inability to know how to be angry correctly. Which is why I think the remedy to anger is not simply suppressing it or denying it or ignoring it, but knowing how to use it correctly, how to be angry rightly. I mean, notice, what does James say? James doesn't say refrain from anger, stop being angry, repent of anger. He says be slow to anger, which implies there's, there's a way to be angry in a right way. So many of us, in fact, all of us, we, we have what, what I kind of refer to as angry chips. We have a certain number of angry chips that we can cash in. And my question is, are we cashing them in for the right things? Or have we gotten to the point where we just cash them in for these lesser issues to the point that we now no longer have enough angry chips when it's necessary and right to be angry? Are we angry at things like bad Wi-Fi? Are we angry at things like the royal schedule? Are we angry at things like I have nothing to wear or whatever it may be? Have we expended all of our energy and angry chips on these things to the point we don't have anything left when it matters? In, in preparing for this uh, sermon, I read an article in Time Magazine entitled America's Growing Anger Problem. And in it, uh, the, the, the author uh, talks about, Jeffrey Kruger is his name, he talks about this growing anger issue, but then he addresses this very important point of knowing how to be rightly angered. And he says this, 
He says, there's something to be said for adjusting the rage to fit the provocation, the the provoking to anger when somebody makes you angry. There's something to be said about adjusting the rage to fit the provocation. If every offensive, unjust, or insulting incident turns into a jolt of high fructose fury, mainline straight to the brain's amygdala, what's left when there's a truly right and righteous reason to rise up in anger? And those important moments do occur. Getting angry is sometimes one of the most loving things we can do. I mean, think about it. If, if, if I heard that my wife was being attacked in the parking lot and you came and told me and I just reacted by saying, well, it is what it is, you, you would doubt my love for my wife. You, you would want me to be angry in that situation. And so there's a sense in which anger, true love demands anger. The question is, do we know how to be angry in the right way? Getting angry is appropriate, but we must know how and when. And oftentimes our anger is the wrong kind of anger, which is why James in verse 20, he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we get angry about our own interests, about our own self-entitlement, our own self-interest, that is the kind of anger when it's just about our own agenda and we're not considering the needs and interests of others, that's when anger, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so the question for us is, are we getting angry at the right things? Throughout my, my kids' lives, I've always prayed this kind of simple prayer over them. I've just prayed, God, would you help, help my children to love you and love the things that you love? There's a simple prayer that I've prayed. And I realize in preparing for this message that, that I ought to also be praying, Lord, help my children, help my children to, to have hearts that are broken by the things that break your heart. That it's not enough just for us to love the things that God loves, but we should be angered rightly about the things that anger God. And so how are we finding ways to be angry about the right things and in right ways? Perhaps we need more righteous anger in our lives to pull us out of our ruts of indifference and apathy so that we aren't just getting angry about these lesser things. Thomas Aquinas, in in teaching on the vice of anger, he said something very boldly. He said, the lack of righteous anger must be seen as sin. It must be seen as sin. So so there's a sense in which, yes, we we do need to do some repenting and turning uh, from our our conventional orthodox anger that we were too excessively angered, too easily angered. But perhaps some of us need to repent of our lack of righteous anger. That we need to repent for the fact that we have not had our hearts broken at the things that break God's heart. Are we angered rightly? I mean, just, just think about the last three things that made you upset, that angered you. And were they things that angered God? Or were they simply things that were just really the product of you being inconvenienced, of you not getting your way? Are we angered by the things that anger God? Do we find ourselves uh, having this righteous anger towards things like, like unethical practices within our corporations and places of work? That, that result in the abuse of power? Do we find ourselves getting angry at a broken education system in parts of our city? Do we find ourselves getting angry at things like bullying, at, at things like domestic abuse? Do we find ourselves angered at, at things like human slavery and trafficking throughout our world? Or do we not have enough energy left because we've spent it all on lesser things? Whether I admit it or not, whether you admit it or not, we are all angrier than we realize. And perhaps it's because we have not been angry at the right things. But there's a sense in which we also need to learn how to be patient with our anger. 
how to be patient with our anger. And, and no one likes talking about patience. I mean, I really like, there's something kind of ironic about patience is that the more you talk about it, the more angry it gets, the angrier you get. Uh, it's a hard virtue to find and to form in our lives, which is evidenced by this great anonymous quote, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, seldom in a woman, but never in a man. That was pretty good. <laughs> You can stitch that on a pillow if you'd like. But, but here's the thing, like pa- patience, patience is not the quality that allows us to just kind of say, hey, it's okay, to just kind of smile and grin it, fake it till you make it. That's not what patience is. That's really apathy. I mean, the, the ability to look at a situation and just kind of have no reaction whatsoever, that's apathy, which is the opposite of love. Patience is a virtue that allows us to properly handle our anger, which is why James in verses two through four says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word steadfastness is the same word for patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea behind this word of steadfastness or patience, the idea is that this, it's the quality that does not allow us to overreact, to, to succumb to situations and circumstances. We're allowed, we, we essentially are able to control our emotion. It's not that we suppress it, subdue it, and ignore it, but that patience is the ability to rightly wield anger. It does not mean that when trials come, you just keep smiling and pretending that everything's okay. Patience is the way in which we properly wield anger. Think of it this way. It's not a coffin that we put anger in. Patience is not a virtue that puts anger in a coffin. It is the virtue that puts a leash on anger, that learns how to control anger, to wield it properly. That is what patience is. And it is so much easier said than done. So right now you're like, okay, I I have an idea now of what patience is, but what does it look like? How do we grow in this virtue of patience as we combat the vice of anger? And so let me just offer a few things for us to consider. The first thing is this, get to know your anger. Get to know your anger. Take it on dates, you know. In all seriousness, what I mean is that we have to understand what is behind our anger. What is causing this reaction in these moments? Because anger is, is, is a secondary emotion often, that it's, it's, it's triggered by something else, and it may be an insecurity, a fear, a pain. What is it that's causing your anger? And one author has suggested this, I think it's a great idea, is, is having an anger journal. And I don't think that's something you can get like at Hobby Lobby. I don't think they have them on the shelf. Uh, but the idea is that basically after you have this amazing blow up, after you have freaked out and overreacted, sit down, once you've calmed down, and just write out the situation, what happened? What was said? What was done? How did you react? What were your emotions? How did you respond? And if that entry is like nine pages long, there's probably a good sign that that's a deeper issue than you probably realize. But take some time to honestly understand why was I so angry? And then rate your anger. Come up with a scale, whatever you want. And then here's what I would say. Close it and come back to that journal in two weeks. Read your entry and see if you're still angry. See if it still kind of riles you up. And, and you may see that, oh man, that was a ridiculous thing that I got angry about. Why, why did that trigger this emotion? And, and do that for several months. Do that for a while to see. Maybe you'll identify patterns of things that trigger anger in your life. And the thing I would add to that as well is invite the voices of people you trust to speak into that. Ask them, do you see me as an angry person or where do you see anger manifested in my life? What form and shape does it take? And that's a hard question to ask someone, but I think we need to get to know our anger. So secondly, and this is a really simple one, hang out in the book of Proverbs. 
Hang out in the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book, collection of great wisdom, 31 chapters. You can read a chapter a day. I, I've always tried to have a reading of, of Proverbs a part of my Bible reading plan, just 31 days in a, in a month, uh, 31 chapters in Proverbs. Read Proverbs. What we find is that almost in every chapter, there's something about our emotions, our anger, and our words. One of my favorite Proverbs, 1429, says, slowness to anger makes for deep understanding, but a quick-tempered person stockpiles stupidity. That's so good. Put that on a coffee mug as well if you're interested. But, but I think there's some, a great practical step. Spend time in the book of Proverbs. Thirdly, put yourself in tough situations. Intentionally put yourself in situations where you know your patience will be tested. And, and the reason I say that is because then when you enter in, you know that you're going to be tested, your patience will be tested, and be aware of your emotions. So like intentionally take the long line at the grocery store and just see how you react. Like this is so weird, you know? And just be aware of how you're feeling, what's taking place in your body and your mind. Put yourself in those tough situations. And, and here's something as well with that. Spend time with people whose lives are more difficult than yours, who have endured pain and sorrow in ways that you haven't, and ask them, find out why. What has enabled you to have this kind of patience? And be careful with how you ask that question, like, your life looks difficult. Like, don't, don't just approach someone like that, but, but trustingly, find someone that you know and have a good relationship with and learn from them. And prepare yourself when you enter into those situations. Be aware of your emotions and what's taking place. And then lastly, and I don't mean to say this flippantly or in, in a trite way, but, but trust that God's got it. Trust that God is in control over your life and over the lives of those that you're in relationship with. When we know that God is, is sovereign over all things, when, when he is infinite in his wisdom, he knows what's best for us. When he's infinite in his love, he desires what's best for us. When he's infinite in his power, he's capable of accomplishing what's best for us. If we understood that and lived into that reality of who God is, we wouldn't need the virtue of patience. Because we would know that God is working out all things for our good. Even though I may not see it fully now, I trust in his infinite wisdom, love, and power. Trust that God's got it. And for some of us, we have to trust that God has it in the lives of others. Because oftentimes our anger is not necessarily something that's happened to us, but we're angry because this person is not where I want them to be. This person is not acting the way I want them to act. And you have to trust that God is at work in their lives as well. Trust that God's got it. If we want to fight this vice of anger that is so deeply seated within us, we need to grow in the virtue of patience. But we will never grow in the virtue of patience ultimately and fully unless, and this sounds so strange, the only way we will be able to defeat anger is if we believe in a God who gets angry. And that, that sounds so backwards. Like, how, how does an angry God help us with our anger problem? Here's the thing, if God is not righteous and not just, if he is not going to set the world to rights, then we will either go down the path of vengeance and taking it into our own hands or down the path of apathy and saying, well, it's broken, what's the point? And you just kind of give up. And neither are desirable nor virtuous. If we want to be people who defeat this vice of anger, we must trust in a God who gets angry rightly. Some of you maybe heard this story recently that, that there's been... I think it was the, the, the fourth massacre in Egypt in five months. Uh, a few days ago, there were about 30 Christians that were, that were shot down and gunned down by uh, ISIS. And, and they were on their way to a monastery for, for like a retreat weekend, I think. Don't quote me on that. But, but they were killed. 
And, and, and the Egyptian church has been so amazing in how they've been responding, but, but this last one has just spread them thin. How do you respond to that kind of situation? How does the Egyptian church, how do our brothers and sisters in Egypt respond to this kind of injustice? And it has been weighing them down. In fact, one of the survivors of this most recent shooting, Deacon Emil Wadi, who survived, he said this. He says that a culture of fear is challenging our culture of faith. The fight takes place deep inside of us, but so far, faith is stronger. Doesn't that put our anger issues in a different perspective? Doesn't that make you feel so ridiculous for the things that you tend to get angry about? What is it that empowers and enables these Egyptian brothers and sisters to be able to respond with forgiveness and compassion as difficult as it is? What enables them to not go down the path of vengeance or apathy? The remedy is found in trusting that there is a God, a righteous judge who will set the world to rights. That is the remedy to our anger problem. And the most beautiful and most powerful picture of this kind of entrusting that God's got it and that he will do all that he desires to maintain and establish justice, the most beautiful and powerful picture is in the gospel of Jesus. And we see it so beautifully in in the work of what Christ did in enduring the cross. Because if there was ever anybody that has lived who deserved to be angry about what was done to them, it was Jesus, the righteous one, who endured the pain and the guilt of all of our sin. And he did it voluntarily. He became the object of God's wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. And so if anyone had the right to be angry, it was Jesus. But how did Jesus respond to this injustice, so to speak, this this act of him bearing the penalty of your sin and mine? The Apostle Peter says it so well for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, what did he do? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." Seeing and believing Jesus as the one who entrusted himself to the one who judged justly, namely God the Father, Jesus went to the cross bearing our shame and guilt. Why? Because he knew that God would set things to rights, that he would use this, this vicarious death, his death in our place to accomplish the work of justice in the world. It is the gospel that enables us to look at evil and justice and say it's wrong, but I trust that the Lord will do something about it. I don't need to take it into my own hands and I don't need to go down the path of apathy. I trust that God will set the world to rights. And when we understand that in the gospel, God has been so abundantly patient with us, when we see that through the gospel, God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us as we sin against him, as we offend him, as we see his abundant patience that is just beyond comprehension, doesn't it make the things we get angry about so utterly ridiculous? Which is at the end of the day, the reason I am an impatient person, the reason why I get angry in my life is because deep down, there's a sense in which I doubt God's patience towards me. And I don't see the magnitude of his forgiveness towards me, his mercy towards me. And so what do we need to defeat this vice of anger? We do need patience, absolutely. 
But more than that, we need to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, to him who is abundantly patient towards us as we continually sin again and again after him. You and I are angrier than we realize, and that's a terrifying thing. And yet at the same time, you and I are also more loved and forgiven than we realize. And that's a beautiful thing. So may the loving patience of our God towards us in Jesus Christ be the means by which we put this vice of anger to death and may it equip us to be people of patience towards those in our life that need it. May the gospel be the remedy to this vice and may we live in accordance with it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of patience, that your patience knows no end. Lord, that that you are described as as being long-suffering, that you endure and put up with us lovingly and graciously. So Lord, I ask right now for your spirit to bring conviction in our hearts about our anger. Lord, open us our eyes to see where anger wells up inside of us, what form and shape it takes. And Lord, would you at the same time remind us of your abundant patience and grace towards us and may that be the means by which that we are equipped and enabled and empowered to be people of patience for the good of others and the glory of your name. Lord, would you bring healing and restoration and may we see Jesus, perhaps even for the first time today, as the one who has come to do something about not only our anger issue, but our sin issue that destroys us and our world. Lord, we entrust all things to you. And we ask that you would work rightly and justly as we know you will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.